0: celebrate every year, Veterans Day on Wednesday this week. Uh, We want to honor our veterans that are present. You have played a critical role in what is beautiful about this country. There's coming a day we won't need a military in the new heavens and the new earth, but until then, we need our military. Uh, As a, a common grace means of restraint, restraint of evil. We see a lot of evil, don't we? And so if you have or are currently serving in the military, we would love for you to stand and so we can honor you this morning. We thank God for you. You're a critical part of What God has done here in America, securing our freedoms and liberties, but it comes at a cost, and you guys have paid uh, that price for us, and we are grateful. Well, if you would look with me in Ephesians 1, we're going to be looking at 1, verses 19 to 23, but that is the second part of a prayer the Apostle Paul begins in verse 15. So for context, if you'll look with me in verse 15, Paul says, for this reason... That is, the reasons he has laid out, the spiritual blessings that have been given us in Jesus Christ, because of I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this privilege, this honor, this responsibility to be able to gather as the people of God under our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to hear the word of Christ sung and prayed and preached. Lord, now we need your grace. We need your spirit to empower us to steward this time well. We pray that the word would teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness. And may we, the people of God, respond in the obedience of faith. We ask these things in the name of our Christ. Amen. Well, next year will be the 30th anniversary of the release of the movie, Hook, which recounts the story of businessman... Peter Bannon, uh, who has forgotten his past life in Neverland, however, Captain Hook wants his formidable foe back. he wants revenge, and so he captures Peter's children and takes them to Neverland. and so Peter has to travel back to Neverland and remember his old self. Now, while he was gone, a new late a leader arose, uh, and that leader was named Rufio, and when he arrives, when Peter arrives back to Neverland, he trains under the tutelage of the lost boys, and they help him get into shape and stir his imagination and help recapture his memory, and and the climax of Peter's training comes is when he learns or relearns how to fly, And, and so as Peter ascends, and that's really what it is, as he ascends into the sky... Rufio realizes the time has come to transfer the power of the leadership back to Peter. And so Rufio falls down on his knees and he offers Peter the sword. And here's what he says to him You are the pan, you can fly, you can fight. And then he joins all the lost boys and they gather around uh, Peter and and they dance. This really is an ascension scene. And and what follows is an empowering building project. And so, as Rufio offers the sword, the, the lost boys are again reunited around their old leader, but he's no longer Peter Banning, he's now Peter Pan. And yet he's not going to go and fight Captain Hook alone. In his ascent, he empowers the lost boys to carry his work in Neverland with him as his leader. Now, his presence both resides with them, but it also transcends them because he alone can fly. But they are now under their leader and they enjoy his authority and they go in confidence because they know their leader has been invested with all power, authority, and dominion. It's remarkable how many secular stories, how many secular movies and novels kind of recount that theme. The reason for that is we've been hardwired for that story. All things were created through Christ and and for Christ. And and we see that analogously again today in a much more glorious story. Uh, In fact, it comes in the midst of a prayer. The Apostle Paul is praying and he lays this story out for us so remarkably. One of the most theologically rich, rich prayers you will ever read. Now, in the context, the Apostle Paul has reminded the people of God that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, every. We don't need a second blessing. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he begins to recount those blessings. God the Father chose us for adoption in eternity past. The Son of God redeemed us by his blood. The Holy Spirit sealed us, guaranteeing our inheritance And then in light of that, he prays. He wants the theology of what he just laid out to be experienced and understood. Why? So that we, the people of God, would not be deceived into giving our lives away for any other cause. This is the only cause that will stand in the end. And this cause is God's plan, and it's accomplished in Jesus Christ. And that cause, that plan is this, to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. One day, all the sad things are going to become untrue. All the, the broken things will be fixed. God is going to make all things new, and that plan is now underway. How do we know? Well, we've been adopted. That's a part of the plan. We've been redeemed. That's a part of the plan. We've been sealed by the Spirit as a down payment guaranteeing our inheritance. That's part of the plan. And that's why Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened in order to know the hope to which God has called us. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That brings us to the third part of this prayer for enlightenment. The critical part, maybe the most important aspect of this prayer. We see this in verses 19 to 20, that believers might be enlightened to the power of the resurrection. So look with me Well, for context, verse 18. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So we need our eyes, our spiritual eyes enlightened. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And notice verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, Paul here especially in verse 19, is alluding to an Old Testament text, Isaiah 40, verse 26, when he speaks of this working of his great might. Now, why is that important? Well, in Isaiah 40, 26, the prophet who's distinguishing the false gods that Judah is gravitating to, he's distinguishing these false gods from the true God in that the true God has the power to create all things out of nothing. And so God's power has been supremely expressed in the Old Testament by the creation of all things, ex nihilo, by his word. And it's remarkable creation. We, we all see the power of God's creation. I saw, I read this remarkable um, stat this week. It says that the observable universe is 93 billion light years across. All right? 93 billion light years across. That's the observable universe. So far, no human has ventured farther than 1.3 light seconds from the earth. That's the creation that God spoke out of nothing by the word of his power. Isaiah is speaking about that. Paul picks that language up, and Paul is using that language not just to display that God demonstrates his power by the resurrection, likewise, but the fact that the re- uh, resurrection is a work of new creation. So Isaiah speaks of God's power in creation. And Paul is using that same language to speak of the resurrection as God raised Jesus from the dead, and that is new creation. And that's consistent with the mystery revealed in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Again, for uh, review's sake, Paul says the mystery that's been revealed is God's purpose to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. Uh, That verb kind of communicates that God is going to bring the whole entire created order that's now under the curse of sin back to the main point for which he created it in Jesus Christ. And now by Paul using this language of resurrection, he is signaling that plan has been inaugurated. The new creation plan has begun in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now, he's going to communicate how powerful this plan and purpose is by these several words, power, working, and might. He's piling up these words. Why? To strengthen our confidence in this plan. No other plan is going to stand in the day, right? This is the plan of the ages. And notice what he says. He said, that power is toward us Who believe this is our present this is our future and so what faith does those who believe are those who have repented of their sins and they have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation they've trusted in Jesus who came as our substitute who lived the life we could not live as the law keeper he fulfilled all righteousness and then Jesus went to the cross And he took the curse of sin in our place as the lawbreaker. He didn't commit sin. Our sin was imputed to him. And God's wrath was propitiated in the Son. And then God raised him from the dead, signaling that the debt had been paid. And now Paul says that resurrection power is toward us who believe. Faith unites us to the resurrected Christ. Now, that's so crucial because the cross and the resurrection, it, it, it reverses God's verdict against us into God's verdict for us. But in addition here, what he's saying here is that all the resurrection power of the Godhead is directed towards every believer. Now, what should that do for us? A lot of us have been despairing this week a lot of us have been very discouraged and even frightened at the kind of things that are going on in our culture Paul says resurrection power is directed to those who believe now that doesn't mean we have power to to pick up an immovable object doesn't mean that we have the power to name it and claim it That you can be everything that you want to be. I could never be an NBA player. I don't have the capacity to do that. That's not what this is referring to. He is setting up the imperatives of Ephesians 4 to 6. In Ephesians 4 to 6, you have 39 commands. Paul wants us to walk worthy of the calling. That's the first command in Ephesians 4 verse 1. We have a calling as the people of God. And Paul says, we have resurrection power to live worthy of that calling. As God's people united to the risen Christ. He's praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened towards that power. The second thing we see here, that believers might be enlightened to the power of the resurrection. Or the ascension, rather. Notice in the... The, the second part of verse 20 thank you for the air-conditioner praise God that's a gift my, my my glasses are slipping down my nose I'm sweating so bad I Feel like I'm in two days uh, notice in the second part of verse 20 he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places So what's this referring to? This is referring to the ascension of Christ and the enthronement of Christ. This this is Christ's exaltation. So Christ's exaltation began with his resurrection. God raised him from the dead on the third day. And then he ascended to the right hand of God where he now sits enthroned in session ruling and reigning now he'll complete that exaltation when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead now in the Old Testament as I said God's power was communicated supremely through the creation event out of nothing by the word of his power you could even add to that the exodus As God delivered his people from the most powerful government in the world by the plagues. But in this one verse, verse 20, we see the ultimate display of God's power. Through these two events, the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to meditate on that. And yet, though these two events are inseparable, they're inseparable because they constitute Christ's exaltation. All right, they are distinct. So, how do we see the distinction between the resurrection and the ascension? Well, I love what Jay Murray Harris says. The resurrection proclaims that Christ lives. And that forever nothing can kill him all right the Ascension proclaims Christ reigns and that forever how important is that for us to hear today no earthly government can stunt that or thwart that Christ lives and that forever Christ reigns and that forever I didn't plan this text For this particular Sunday. It's the sweet providence of God. For us to hear this text. On this particular Sunday. Now Peter Orr I think is very insightful here. Christians he says have tended. To focus on what Jesus has done. That is his life. His death. And his resurrection. And what he will do. What will he do? He'll return in glory. But here, we see what Jesus is doing now. That's so important for us. We see what Jesus is doing now. Have you thought about that? What's Jesus doing now? He's seated at the right hand of God. And he's reigning and ruling as the Davidic king. You could also say here that the ascension... Vindicates the resurrection. Now, the resurrection vindicated the cross. You know, scholars say that some 10,000 criminals died on a Roman cross in the course of time. Jesus was one of those who died on the cross. The resurrection vindicates the cross. Jesus was raised from the grave bodily on the third day. And now the ascension vindicates the resurrection. And so in a sense, the ascension of Christ partially completes the goal of the incarnation. What is the incarnation? When the eternal Son of God took on human flesh So the ascension partially completes the goal of the incarnation where he brings humanity to God. The Son of God brings humanity to God. That's what the ascension does. And so God came to humanity in the incarnation and the ascension now brings humanity to God. In other words, think of it this way. The resurrection is where Jesus conquered death for all those who believe. He conquered death for humanity, for those who believe. And in his ascent, he took that victory to heaven. The ascent is so critical for for believers to contemplate. And that ascent also tells us that he's the one who's going to come to judge in the last day. Christ will come on a white horse, Revelation 19 tells us, covered in blood. And he will conquer all of his and our enemies. Now, Paul here is alluding, and this is important for us to understand, to Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, why is that an important verse? Well, it's interesting that it's the most quoted verse in the New Testament of the Old Testament. The most quoted Old Testament verse is Psalm 110, verse verse 1. In fact, it's quoted 38 times in the New Testament. You think it's important? And what is that verse? The Lord says to my Lord. So David is writing, and he is speaking about his Lord, his King. And he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Paul's saying he has seated at the, he has been seated at the right hand of the Lord. That, that process, that plan is in place until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. In fact, in Psalm 110, you read that the king will be surrounded by faithful troops. Those who offer themselves willingly in that day. Psalm 110, verse 3. It's a remarkable psalm. And it's going to be through God's power and this king and his faithful troops that the reign of the Davidic king will be extended throughout the whole earth. That whole earth terminology is found there. And his, and yet his enthronement will be followed by constant warfare, but in time... His enemies will be crushed. And so when we see warfare, we shouldn't be disheartened. It's part of the plan. The king has been enthroned. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is going to prevail. Paul is praying that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened to that reality so that we don't lose hope. The third part of this prayer, he says that the believers might be enlightened to the power of Jesus' subjection of all things. Notice with me in verse 21. And he says, he was seated, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, Paul does not identify these various powers. His point is, whoever they are, they are now in subjection to Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God. Now, some say this is referring to the ancient deities of the Greek pantheon. Paul didn't believe in those deities, but the Greeks did. And he says Christ is over. They have been subjected to the Christ. Some say it's fallen angels. Paul says they have been subjected to Christ. And many say it's referring as well to Caesar. When he says, and the names... Referring to the Caesars, the emperors, the political leaders of the day. So if that's the case, and I believe it is the case, Paul's not just making a cosmic argument. He's making a political argument. Someone asked me yesterday, how many churches in America today will be preaching on politics? And my answer is, I hope all of them are. And the main point of those political sermons is this. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's enthroned as king. He is seated at the right hand of God. And it's especially hopeful because Paul says this rule covers both the present and the future age. Notice with me in the second part of verse 21. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come we're not having to wait it's in this age right now and so with the exaltation of the King the Lord Jesus Christ the age to come where all things will be brought in subjection to Christ Ephesians 1:10, has broken in to this present age so that now the two ages overlap we live in the overlap of the ages This broken, sinful age, what Paul calls the present age, now has been invaded by the new creation age whose king is Jesus. That's so hopeful. Be encouraged by that. Don't let the news determine your psyche, your spirit. Let the word of God do the encouraging. And notice in verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. Now this is so critical. Jesus' ascension and his session. Now what do we mean by session? Where he's ruling. He's ruling in session now as king at the right hand of God. So his ascension and his session is the hinge on which the New Testament turns. And so the exaltation... And the rule of Jesus is not only the spur propelling believers into the world, it's our message. It's our message to the world. The king sits enthroned. We don't have to wait to January 6th. Now, this terminology here, he put all things under his feet. We saw that he's quoted Psalm 110. But if you know your Bible, you know as well, here he's quoting Psalm 8, verse 6. Referring to humanity as God's image bearers, as God created us to be. When God created us as his image bearers, he put all things under our feet. We were given dominion over the entire created order, and we lost that dominion because we went rogue in Adam. We sinned in Adam. And now, Paul is saying that in Jesus, who is the ideal image bearer, Psalm 8 reaches its absolute fulfillment. Again, what's going on? God has revealed to Paul, the mystery revealed, that he is going to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. That's Ephesians 1.10. He's summing up all things in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.10. And now we see that plan is being is underway. He is beginning with his image bearers. Jesus, all things have been placed underneath his feet as our substitute, as the ideal man. And so Paul has discussed in this prayer Jesus' resurrection his ascension enthronement, and, and his universal dominion. But he's not done. We come to the fourth and final event that demonstrates his power. He's going to show us how this triple triumph, what I mean by triple triumph, the resurrection, the ascension, and his session, how it relates to the church. And that brings us to the final part here, That believers might be enlightened to the power of Jesus' appointment as head over the church. Look at me in the second part of verse 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. I love that. So head here refers to authority. The head is the authority. Jesus is the authority of the church. In other words, Jesus' dominion over the world is for the benefit of the church. Let's read that again. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. As much as we... As much as what we see with our physical eyes may seem to deny this, What do we see with our physical eyes? Political chaos. We see the bias and the indoctrination of a largely progressive leftist media. A media that's been trained in colleges with Marxist professors. We've seen the rise of politicians who, who represent the opposite of what we hold dear. And yet, Paul will say... None of that can can thwart God's plan in Christ. History, inevitably, is going to march towards the triumph of Jesus' church. Such a providential text for us this week. Notice, in fact, how he ends with this focus on the church. Notice, Paul doesn't focus on the government. Important as the government is... Romans 13, a good government restrains evil. A good government, as long as it functions the way Scripture intends a government to function, is a beautiful common grace for the world. But Paul's interest is what God is doing in the church. All right? Notice in verse 23, he says, The church is his body. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. I'm not sure there's a more important verse in the Bible for Christ's church than verse 23. We see the significance of the church here in God's plan by the use of two terms to describe His church. What are those two terms? His body. His body, which shows the organic unity between the head, Christ, and His bride, the church. Marriage signals that, in fact, the two becoming one flesh. That's why marriage has to be between a man and a woman or it misrepresents this relationship that Christ has with His bride. The second term he uses is Fullness. He calls the church his fullness. The church, in other words, is the headquarters of Jesus' rule and presence in the world. That's what he means by that. The church is the headquarters of Jesus' rule and presence in the world. Jesus, by the Spirit of Christ, fills the church. So Paul is saying that the church. Now you say, well, are you talking about the universal church? Well, again, let me repeat this. There is a universal church. Every believer at all times and places. But the emphasis in the New Testament is the local church. In fact, uh, of the 114 times the word church is used, 92 to 93 of those times refers to the local church. So the emphasis in the New Testament is... Is on the local church. So here we could say Fisherville. Fisherville Baptist Church. And Paul is saying that the church is the vehicle by which God's presence in Christ fills the earth. Now in Ephesians 4.10, Paul says this about Jesus' ascension. He ascended far above all the heavens... That he might fill all things. That he might fill all things. One day, the whole earth is going to be filled with the presence and the rule and the reign of King Jesus. Every tribe and tongue will bow the knee. And Paul is saying that begins at the church level. He fills the church. And as the church grows... And expands by the great commission, the rule, the reign of the king comes to bear on the world. In other words, the ascension not only confirms Jesus' work, it continues his work through his spirit-filled church. The church is the place of Jesus' activity now, just as his physical body was during his earthly ministry. The nature of this feeling, I think, is in the sense that he is going to pervade all things with his sovereign rule, with his covenantal presence, as God directs all things to their appointed end. Let me give you a couple of verses from Psalm 72. For context here, King Solomon is writing this. As far as I know, it's the only psalm that King Solomon wrote. But he's thinking about the son of David who's going to come. Solomon knows he's not the one. All he has to do is look in the mirror. But he knows there's one coming. And here's what he says of the one coming, the son of David. Psalm 72, 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. That's a prayer. It's a spirit-inspired prayer, which means it's going to be answered. And then he goes on in verse 19, referring to the Lord. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. You see the point? So the rule of the Davidic king is going to extend to the ends of the earth and that's coextensive with the glory of God filling the whole earth. And Paul is saying Christ now fills the church. To put it another way, the church is the space where Jesus works as prophet, priest, and king. How important is the church? It's the only sanity right now. So thinking of verse 22 and verse 23 together, that for which the universe is being filled, the church, is the instrument of his filling. Brian Chappell says it this way, Jesus is changing the world for the good of the church by means of the church. That's not to say politics aren't important. They are. They're mentioned in the Bible. Government's mentioned in the Bible. It's important. But it's not our hope. Our hope sits at the right hand of God. And that hope's going to be realized in this world through you. Through us. Through the local church. And through our Great Commission missionaries. What this means for every believer as we come to a close here. In light of God's purpose for the church, there can be no Lone Ranger Christians. God's doing this in the church. Now, some people who are rightly homebound, granted. But in the main, there cannot be any Lone Ranger Christians. This is where God's at work. It's the local church. Secondly, there can be no fugitives. The temptation is real... Here, because the the, the church can be painful to endure at times. We have a family meeting tonight. We're at 6 o'clock here, and we hope all of you are here. I've had some painful family meetings here, right? But we can't be fugitives. I'm just going to leave that place. It's Too much chaos. Well, maybe that chaos is designed to grow you up, teach you how to love. Teach you how to deny self. It's a means of sanctification. Finally, there can be no Eeyores. Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. For all the church's weaknesses, she is the surefire means that God is using to bring about his purposes in Jesus Christ. So in sum, Paul is concluding a prayer that we would be enlightened to this reality. All right? This reality that God is summing up all things in Jesus Christ and that reality is being realized in His church. The fullness of Him who will one day fill all in all. We now enjoy the authority of our Christ and we can go out in confidence because he has been granted all authority power and dominion that story isn't 30 years old like hook it's the story of the ages may that be our hope this morning let's pray father thank you for your mercy and grace thank you for this word may it encourage your people And for those who do not know you in a saving way in your son, Jesus, may this text be the power of God, the salvation. May they look to Christ and be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.